Our passage this morning tells us of Jesus preaching the good news of the gospel in Galilee and the calling of his first disciples. Having been prepared by the Holy Spirit in the desert and having been announced to the world by John the Baptist as the Son of God, this Savior, this Christ, begins his public ministry. The time has come, he says in verse 15. The kingdom of God is near, he says. Indeed, the time has come and the kingdom is near. It is still the time and the kingdom is still near. We're going to look this morning at the gospel that Jesus preached. Believe the good news of God and repent. We're going to look this morning at Jesus' call to follow me. And we're going to look at the response to the call to follow me. So first, the gospel that Jesus preached. The first thing we hear about Jesus in this passage is that he was proclaiming the good news of God. Verse 14. This is not just good news in the regular sense. Uh, You might get good news that you won a prize or good news that uh, you got a contract at work. No, this is not normal good news. This is the best news possible. This is the one thing needful. You cannot receive better news than this. And what is this good news? Well, the parallel passage in Matthew 4 tells us, The people living in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of the shadow of death, a light has dawned. You see, the reality is that we all live in the land of the shadow of death, where everyone is a sinner. We are all sinful from birth. The Bible, which is the word of God, tells us so. Psalm 51.5 says, Surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. So we know it's true. We know that we're all sinful from birth because God says it's true. Our first parents, Adam and Eve, they sinned and plunged the whole world into sin. So we are born sinners by nature, and perhaps no surprise, we sin every day. Ecclesiastes 7.20 says, There is not a righteous man on earth who does what is right and never sins. Or 1 John 1.8 says, If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we say that we don't sin, we're not telling the truth. Romans 3.23 says, All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So we're all sinners. Now we could stop there. The Bible I just read you three passages from the Bible that tell us that. We should believe that and move on. But we know from our own experience that this is true. In other words, our experience affirms the word of God. We know that everyone is a sinner. Look at it this way. Everyone we know has sinned against us in some way or the other. And we know that we ourselves are sinners. And we sin all the time. If we stop and examine our lives... We will see that we have done wrong and we know that we have done wrong. Sometimes we have done terrible wrongs. And we look back and we can't believe we did that terrible thing. Yes, we all know that we have failed to do what God requires. That's what sin is, failing to do what God requires. We have failed to love our wives as Christ loved the church. We have failed to love our neighbors as ourselves. We have failed to do everything for the glory of God. Whether we eat or drink or whatever we do, we're supposed to do it for the glory of God. 
And we know that we have done what God prohibits. That's the other side of sin. We haven't done what he told us to do, and we do what he tells us not to do. We have stolen, we have lied, we have looked lustfully at another. We have made idols of work or family or children or selves. We have been greedy and so on. And due to our sin, we are under the sentence of eternal death. That's our big problem. God is perfectly holy. His eyes cannot even look upon evil. He has decreed a just eternal punishment for every sinner. He says the wages of sin is death. Eternal death, Romans 6.23, and each one of us deserves it. So we have all sinned, and the wages of sin is death, and that is why we live in the land of the shadow of death. That is why we are living in darkness. But as I said, I have good news, and I do. Yes, we live in the land of the shadow of death, but a light has dawned. And Jesus Christ is that light. Jesus said, I am the light of the world. As he proclaimed in the parallel passage in Luke 4, referring to the Old Testament, he said, the spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to preach the good news to the poor. That's us. We're the poor. And what's that good news? He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners. That's us, the prisoners. Recovery of sight for the blind. That's us, blinded by sin. To release the oppressed. That's us, oppressed by sin and hell and death and judgment. He has come to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, he said. That is good news, good news, good news. That is great light. We are sinners, justly condemned to eternal hell with no way out. We committed that infinite sin against infinite God, and we deserve that infinite punishment. We could never repay it. We could never pay off that debt. And we are in a sorry state. But at that time, with us in that infinite debt, with us subject to that infinite punishment, at that time, in his great love, God moved. He sent his perfect son, eternal God, Jesus Christ, to become man and to live a perfect life without sin and in total obedience to God the Father. And then he died on the cross, bearing the full wrath of God for all who will put their faith in Jesus Christ. See, fully God... He could fully bear the infinite punishment that we could not. Fully man, he could stand in our place, take our place, and take that punishment that we deserved. He took all of our sin on himself and put all of his righteousness onto us. As it says in 2 Corinthians 5.21, God made him who had no sin, that's Jesus, to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. That is the good news. We can become the righteousness of God. Our sins can be forgiven, we can have peace with God, and we can have fellowship with God. And it is all available for free. We don't have to pay any money. We don't have to earn it by a bunch of good works. We don't have to be born into a certain race or a certain country or a certain family. No, it's all available by free grace. Salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, Ephesians 2.8. It is God's free gift available to all people, purchased by the blood of Christ, the light of the world, and as I said, available to all. To all who believe, to all who put their faith in him. 
to all who trust in him alone for salvation, to all who confess with their mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in their hearts that God raised him from the dead. This is the good news that Jesus proclaimed. While we were utterly sinful, while we were oppressed, while we were blind, while we were prisoners, while we were enemies of God, Jesus the Christ died for our sins and was raised from death for our justification. And having been justified by faith, we can now have peace with God. We no longer have to fear judgment. We no longer have to fear sin and death and eternal punishment. No, we who are justified by faith, we who are justified by God's mercy and grace, we are destined for glory. We are destined for heaven. We are destined for the very presence of God. We will worship him face to face forever. We deserve death, but he gave us life. We deserved hell, but he gave us heaven. We deserved eternal shame, but he gave us eternal glory. Hallelujah, good news. And this same good news that Jesus preached about 2,000 years ago, we proclaim today. It is the same good news for all people. Yes, you are a sinner, and the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Jesus Christ. And you can still receive it for free by faith, even today. The good news of God is still the good news of God. Now, not everyone will receive this free gift of grace. Some will reject it. They will irrationally hang on to their eternal punishment instead of grabbing hold of the free gift received by faith. I counsel you today, don't be a fool. Cry out to God for mercy, put your faith in Christ, and take advantage of this good news that he proclaimed and which we proclaim to you right now. Be freed from Satan's prison. Be released from the oppressive slavery to sin. Look up from the darkness to the light of Christ and be saved and rejoice in the good news today. So I said this good news had two parts. One is believe the good news of God. The other is repent. So I'm going to talk about repent now. Believing the good news of God, putting your faith in Christ, is only the first step on this glorious journey. Just because this salvation is free and available by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, does not mean that it is easy. It does not mean that we have no obligation to our new Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Indeed, Jesus tells us here and elsewhere that we must repent. It is not just believe in the gospel, believe in the good news of God. No, it is repent and believe in the gospel. That's what it says. Repentance and faith are inseparable. They're closely joined together, and any attempt to split them apart results in a false gospel that cannot save you. You cannot truly repent unless you also believe. Unless God regenerates you and makes you alive and gives you a new heart and a new nature and enables you to repent. Any call to repent only without the accompanying call to faith in Christ... Any such call is a call to merit-based salvation. That means earning it yourself. Any attempt to earn your salvation will necessarily fail, and you and your self-generated repentance will invariably revert. It will be short-lived. 
You may experience a brief moral reform, but you will return to your old ways because you have not fundamentally changed. The repent only, the earn your salvation heresy is a long-standing heresy, but the much more common heresy in our time is to preach believe without preaching repent. Without repentance, there is no forgiveness of sin. Yet many in the so-called church world these days preach a repentance-free false gospel of what they used to call easy believism. Simply speak some magic words and you will be saved. No change, no holiness, no repentance. Some of these fraudulent preachers teach that salvation without repentance uh, is, is their explicit doctrine. In other words, they unashamedly declare this. Those guys are easy to spot. They're telling you what you want to hear so that they can become rich and famous and popular all the while sending their hearers to hell. Others will not be so direct. They will preach against an imagined legalism as though that is the problem of our time. They will suggest that any call to repentance and holy living is an attempt to earn your salvation. These are wolves in sheep's clothing. At least the person who says you don't need to repent is a wolf in wolves' clothing. But these guys are wolves in sheep's clothing. They spiritualize their lawless, godless, unholy antinomianism by setting up and attacking straw man arguments. Such preachers are just as dangerous as those who explicitly teach that you don't need to repent. They're just as dangerous, but they're just less bold. Like St. Paul, we say to such people, by no means, no way, me ganoito. St. Paul said, repent and prove your repentance by your deeds, Acts 26, 20. St. Peter said, repent every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sin, Acts 2, 38. Jesus Christ said, repent in Mark 4, Mark 4, 17, Luke 24, 46 through 48, Revelation 3, 3. In the words, Jesus said this and said this and said this again. God the Father, the Sovereign Lord, the Holy One of Israel says, In repentance and rest is your salvation. Isaiah 30, 15. In fact, this same God the Father commands all people everywhere to repent. Acts 17, 30. So what's my point? You must repent or perish. You must do one or the other. Choose repentance Choose Christ, choose life. And what does it mean to repent? Well, repentance is a turning, a metanoia, a, a change of mind, Mark 1, 15. A turning from sin to God, a complete change in orientation, a new way of thinking altogether, a repudiation of the old, in short, a conversion. It is a fundamental thinking that leads to a fundamental change of behavior. I no longer love my sin and nurture it, but I hate my sin and daily crucify it by the power of the Holy Spirit. That's repentance. I no longer conceal my sin so that I can keep doing it, but I confess it and forsake it. Proverbs 28, 30, 13. That's real repentance. And real repentance is a permanent change. It's not a short-term thing. As Martin Luther said in the first of his 95 theses, the entire life of believers is to be one of repentance. That's all areas of life, all the time, forever. We become the opposite 
of what we were in every material respect. See, this good news is not that we can go on sinning. It's that we don't have to go on sinning. We are no longer slaves to sin. We died to sin with Christ. We cannot live in it any longer. So I say today, repent, turn, be free of your slavery to sin by faith in Christ and by the power of the Holy Spirit. Repent, rejoice, and rejoice with the whole heavenly host. It says that in the Bible, the whole heavenly host rejoices at the repentance of one sinner. This Jesus, having called us to uh, repent, having called us to believe the good news of God, then calls us to follow me. So this is my next point. Follow me. He calls every sinner, come, follow me. You see this in verse 17 and verse 20. Now this, of course, in, in our text this morning, this was a special call to his disciples who would go with him and who would later act as eyewitnesses to what they saw and what they heard. But this call to follow me is not merely a call for those 12. It is a call that Christ gives to every Christian. Come, follow me. See, we are the objects of the Great Commission, Matthew 28. It says, go into all the world, making disciples of all nations, baptizing them, that's us, into the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them, that's us, to obey everything I commanded. So this is the charge that he gave to his disciples. Go into all the world and baptize them and teach them, follow me, follow Christ. 1 Peter 2.21 says we must follow in his steps. 1 Corinthians 11.1 1, uh, says follow me as I follow Christ. 1 John 2.6 says that as Christians, all Christians, we must walk as Jesus did. And of course the Lord Jesus said deny yourself, take up your cross and follow me. So this call is for everyone. It's not just for the 12. It's not just for pastors. It's not just for super Christians. It is for all who repent and believe the good news of God. Now, notice whom he calls. He calls a bunch of nobodies. He does not begin his ministry in Rome, the capital of the world at that time, nor does he begin it in Jerusalem, the capital of the Jews. He does not begin by preaching the good news to Caesar, the most powerful person on earth. He doesn't even go to the Roman governor or the Jewish heads of state, the leading people in the local area. He does not go to the high priest or other so-called religious leaders. No, this son of God, this Christ, fully God, fully man, a very high person, this Jesus goes to Galilee, the backwater of backwaters. It was a racially mixed, geographically separated northern province of Israel. They were the culturally despised, we could call them rednecks. They spoke a low-class form of Aramaic, and they were viewed as lacking in proper religious observance. One writer said that a Galilean in Jerusalem was like a Texan in New York City or viewed like an Irishman in London. They were viewed as inferior they were viewed as lower. They were viewed as nothings. Acts 4.13 says that some of the leaders took note that these were ordinary, unschooled men. On top of that, even in Galilee, he goes to fishermen. 
Now these are lowly people. They work all night. They do hard manual labor. They smell bad of sweat and fish. He bypasses the synagogues and the rabbis and the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And he goes to the fishermen of Galilee. These are the absolute zeros. Praise God, he goes to the absolute zeros. And notice that uh, this Christ goes to these zeros and he chooses them. He could have chosen anyone he wanted. But he chooses these zeros and he saves them based on his love and his mercy and not based on any of our qualities. Praise the Lord. The next thing we notice about this call is that it is a call. It is a command. It is an imperative. They must go. Come, follow me, he commands. It is not an invitation. Would you like to come and follow me? It is not even a suggestion. You know, you really should come and follow me. It is a call, a command. They do not have the option of declining. Eternal God says, repent, and you must repent. He says, believe the good news of God, and you must believe the good news of God. He says, follow me, and you must follow him. Eternal God is speaking, and there is no legitimate other option. Now, if this all sounds a little dictatorial, a little undemocratic, it is because it is. God is not, of course, a dictator in the you know, Hitler or Stalin mode. He is eternally and perfectly good. But he is absolutely sovereign. He is all-powerful. He does have the absolute right to tell us what to do, and he does tell us what to do. Rather than grumble about this perceived intrusion into your personal sovereignty or your freedom to choose, no, no, we shouldn't grumble about that. We should praise God that he calls us, that he draws us by his irresistible grace. See, if any part of our salvation depended upon us, we would surely say no. As I already said, we were dead in our transgressions of sins. We were enemies of God. So praise God he did not leave it up to us. Praise God that he instead regenerates us, makes us alive, his elect, his chosen. Praise God he gives us a new heart, a new mind, and a new set of affections. Praise God he commands us and enables us to respond to that command in the affirmative. Otherwise, as I said, otherwise we would say no. And we would be left in our sorry state in our sorry former condition as enemies of God. Dead, disobedient, and damned. So praise God, it is a mandatory call. And last point on this call, the response to the gospel call. First response is, they go. Jesus says, come, and they come. And that is the only proper response to his call, follow me, is to follow me. Second, we notice they come right away. Their response is immediate. Speaking of Simon and Andrew in verse 18, it says, at once they followed him. Speaking of James and John in verse 20, it says they followed him without delay. They left their father in the boat and they went. No questions, no interviews, no bargaining, no months long back and forth in response to the call. They just go. They leave their nets and they leave their father Zebedee and they go. 
Now, this does not mean that you should mindlessly go or that you're not born again if you wrestled with the call to Christ. No, but it means it is an urgent call. It is an important call. It is a divine call that admits of no delay. It is more important than your job or your property or even your own family ties. You must go. And it is too important. It is too weighty. It is too eternal a question to get caught in analysis paralysis, to be caught in indecision. You are being called from eternal death to eternal life. Go. Go now. Go today. It is urgent. Now is the time of God's favor. Now is the day of salvation. 2 Corinthians 6, 2. Tomorrow may not come. Do not let Christ and his free offer of eternal life pass you by. Grab hold of it today. We also notice that it is a costly call. Just because it is free does not mean it is easy, I said. Just because it is worth it does not mean that you don't have to pay some price. Not some price to achieve it, but some price in consequence of receiving it. Look at Peter. Peter left his nets and his boat. That probably took a long time for him to earn. Perhaps he inherited it from his father, who took a long time to earn it. But the net and the boat represents a lot of labor over time. He walked away, no problem. And he never went back to being a full-time fisherman. Instead, he walked with Christ all over Israel for three years. He preached all over the world. He was arrested, imprisoned, and crucified for Christ. There was indeed a price to pay, a costly price. Or look at James and John. They left their father Zebedee in the boat. Now Zebedee must have been very disturbed by this, at least at first. He probably had a family succession plan. My sons will take over my business. But he didn't even get two weeks notice. See, family ties are strong, but the call of Christ is stronger. Your family may be upset with you. They may disown you. Your friends may abandon you. If you turn to Christ and follow him, some people may think that you've gone crazy. But as the Lord Jesus says, anyone who loves his father or mother... Anyone who loves his son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Matthew ten thirty seven. Now we pray, of course, that it never comes to this. We pray that we never need to make the choice that we will win those family and friends for Christ. But if it comes down to it, we must. We must leave them in the boat and follow Christ. Indeed, we sing at the baptism, though none go with me, Still I will follow, whatever the cost. Notice also that this is a permanent call. Christ calls us to follow me for all our lives, indeed for all eternity. It is not a temporary or seasonal or off and on call. It is a once for all call. Notice that they left the boat and the nets and the fish and all of it. See you later. We're not coming back. They left all that behind and they were all in. No one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for service in God's kingdom. Luke 9, 62. Or we are reminded of Elisha, the prophet. When he was called, he stepped off the plow. He chopped up the expensive wooden equipment. He butchered the expensive oxen and he burned it all up as a sacrifice. In other words, he was saying, I'm going and I'm not coming back. 
This is a one-way ticket. No contingency plan, no safety net. We trust God completely, and we go where he tells us to go. We follow him without looking back and without keeping our options open. And that might sound scary, but there is no safer thing you can do. Entrust yourself fully to Almighty God. He is trustworthy. He is able. He does what he says he will do. And he says he will never leave you nor forsake you. See, what he promises, he delivers. What he commands you to do in his word, he empowers you to do by his Holy Spirit, Calvin said. He never fails. He who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it. He will take you all the way, all the way to eternal heaven, all the way to eternal life, all the way to eternal glory. So I say, trust in him. Follow him. It is the safest and most fulfilling thing you can do. We see also that this is a comprehensive call. When Jesus calls you to repent, to believe the good news, and to follow me, he is calling your whole self. God calls us to follow him with all our heart, all our mind, all our soul, and all our strength. See, God will never take half a person. Such a lukewarm person is neither hot nor cold, and God will spit him out. Such a double-minded person who thinks he's partly for God and partly for the devil or the world. Such a person is unstable in everything. In actuality, he is deceived. He remains a child of the devil. A double-minded person remains an enemy of God. As a house divided against itself cannot stand, so a man who thinks he is partly for God and partly against God cannot stand. He will eventually collapse into confusion and return to his master, the devil. Although Christ extends his free offer of salvation to all, as I already said, not everyone will come. But those who do come must come and will come wholeheartedly, in spirit and in truth, in all areas of life, for all of life. That's 100% of your life, a 100% commitment for 100% of your life it is an all or nothing proposition you either come follow me and keep following me or you don't it covers the big things and the small things in other words as i said it's comprehensive it's full orbed whether you eat or drink or whatever you do you must now do it all for the glory of god it covers everything in life Your actions, your thinking, your emotions, your own purposes must be God's purposes. By God, through God, and for the glory of God. That's what it means to follow me. The person who answers the call, follow me, must follow him all the way. We no longer even belong to ourselves. We belong to him. He becomes our Lord, and we become his obedient slaves. I am not my own, we sing, I belong to Jesus. We will live for him who died for us if we answer the call, follow me. Now the call to follow me also means that we tell others about Jesus. That's what it says. It says, come follow me and I will make you fishers of men. Verse 17. Jesus may call us out of homes and families. He may call us to leave our boats and our nets immediately, but he does not call us to be alone. As he says here in verse 17, I will make you fishers of men. 
When Christ regenerates us and makes us alive, he immediately commands and empowers us to share this good news with others, to call others to life in Christ. We were reminded of the apostle Andrew, John 140, it tells us that Andrew was Simon Peter's brother. And it goes on to say that, that after Andrew met this Christ and heard from this Christ, the first thing, first thing he did was to find his brother Simon and tell him, we have found the Messiah. Philip did the same thing for Nathaniel, and so did St. Paul right after his miraculous conversion in Acts chapter 9. It says, at once he began to preach in the synagogues that Jesus is the Son of God. Not after five years he began to preach. He was saved, and at once he began to preach that Jesus is the Son of God. There are many other examples in the Bible. We can think of the blind man. We can think of the demoniac. They went and told all about what Jesus had done for them. Jesus calls us to follow him and to be fishers of men. I heard somebody say, God is the fisherman, but he uses us as the fishing pole. He calls us to be his witnesses, to tell how much Jesus has done for us. To say, I was blind, but now I see. I was dead, but now I am alive. I was God's enemy, but now he has adopted me as his son whom he loves. I was hurtling down the broad way to hell, but now I finally walk along the highway of holiness, in joy, bound for heaven. Praise the Lord, he saved us. Let us tell others about him. We must all be fishers of men. Gladly telling others this good news of great joy. Preaching as Jesus did, as Peter and Paul did, and as every true believer does, repent and believe the good news of God. And then follow me as I follow Christ. The final characteristic of our response to this call is joy. Great joy. As 1 Peter 1, 8 says, it is joy unspeakable and full of glory. Christians can be and should be and must be the most joyful people around. All of our problems are solved. Our eternal destiny is secure. We will see God face to face and we will worship him forever in ecstasy in heaven. No tears, no pain, no sin, no trouble. Just perfect holiness, perfect ability and perfect willingness to know and do the will of God. And glory, glory, glory. See, we may have trouble in this world, but even in that trouble, we can rejoice. For God has overcome the world. We rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. Philippians 4, 4. We have God. God loves us. God saved us. God adopted us. God made us alive. God joined us to his holy family, his church. God makes sure that everything that happens to us happens for our ultimate good. Romans 8, 28. You see, we should be joyful. We should be joyful because life is good with God. Life is happy with God. When we are saved, when we answer that call to believe the good news of God and to repent and follow me, when we do that, we are filled with joy. We are filled with the joy of the Lord. Yes, it may ebb and flow somewhat with 
our situation, but the deep reservoir of the joy in knowing that I am saved, that I am destined for heaven, that I am headed for eternal glory, that deep reservoir of joy is always with us. No person, no circumstance, no nothing can take it away. I rejoice in the Lord in everything, for he is in everything. Not a hair of my head can fall to the ground without his say-so, and he only says so if it's for my eternal good. He said, I give them eternal life, and they shall never perish. No one can snatch them from my hand. That's us. We have eternal security in Christ. No one can snatch us from the very hand of God. We should rejoice, and we should rejoice greatly. So in conclusion, what should we do with all of this? Well, I say what Jesus said, the kingdom of God is near. Repent and believe the good news. Follow him. Leave all to follow him. Cry out to him, have mercy on me, a sinner. And don't dither, don't delay. Don't hesitate. Answer the call today. Follow him today. Leave your nets and your boat today. Commit to Christ today. Give him your whole self and your whole life today. Tell others about Jesus today. And rejoice in the Lord today. And tomorrow and the next day, and the next day, and the next day. We live a blessed life in Christ, and let us never forget it. Let us be his faithful followers. Let us be his faithful fishers of men until he calls us to himself in fulfillment of his promises to us. Heavenly Father, we have heard the word, and we pray, O God, that we would do it. We would put it into practice. So we pray, save your people this day, And help us to follow you and to tell others about Jesus. In Jesus' name, amen.